there in the galaxy, it's time for another episode of Star Wars All In, the show that goes all in on all the details, the characters, the places, the things, the stuff from that galaxy far, far away. I'm one of your hosts, my name is Mac, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Ross. Mac, it's great to be here with you today out in the edge of the unknown reaches of the galaxy. We're discovering uh, new planets together. In fact, we're going to head over and check out this uh, this little this little dirt ball over here. Uh, tat, tatine? Tat, tat, how do you think that's pronounced? Tatooine? Tatooine? Oh, tattoo. Tattooing. Tattooing, right? Yeah, we're going to discover this new planet and see. I hear there's a local species, the Jewoos, and they're, yeah, they're not so nice, I hear. Well, but a good value. I recommend that once we take it all over, we're just going to rename it stuff we want to call it. We'll call it Tejas. <laughs> Hope we don't run but into the giant talking. slugs. <laughs> All right, joking aside, we are actually going to be talking about that outer rim, the expansion regions of the uh, the um, the old New Republic, the, the Republic, <laughs> uh, as it tries to expand out the era in which we find the the uh, High Republic. And against the backdrop of all these new cultures and all this frontier adventures, we fall onto a disaster. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not going to be a day with uh, happy stories and good tidings. It's going to be a day of uh, trauma and sadness. As we discuss what tragically happens when something moving at light speed stops moving at light speed, as we discuss the great hyperspace disaster. Yes, and spoilers ahead for the first uh, 25% or so of Light of the Jedi, the first novel in the High Republic saga. So just as a heads up, if you don't want to be spoiled, go read that first and then come back. But if you don't mind some spoilers, uh, this may get you interested in reading it. So uh, stick around. Right, so out there in the majestic blue tunnels of hyperspace, hundreds of craft are flying through the various hyperspace lanes, going from one planet, one system to another, uh, crossing all of the galaxy. And for thousands of years, this has been the way that interstellar commerce has worked. Uh, Except if they fall out of hyperspace... Which would be really bad, which is good that that's like never really happened before, because then you'd have fragments of ships going at near light speeds, hitting into who knows what. That would be quite the disaster. 
And that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the High Republic's great hyperspace disaster. Yes, we are. The uh, ill-fated final run of the Legacy Run. The ship piloted mm. by Hedda Cassett and uh, the start of the High Republic era for Star Wars. And, uh, Mac, let's jump right into the story here. Now, we should say mm -hmm. one last final warning. Some uh, more major spoilers for the first bit of Light of the Jedi. Uh, so, right. one last final warning. So, we open up on the Legacy Run traveling through hyperspace, a freighter that is carrying 9,000 passengers to the Outer Rim to begin a new life. All of these passengers are aware of the danger that awaits them on the Outer Rim, but they're confident that the Republic will protect them and get them there to establish their new lives safely. The core yeah, worlds are the... expanding. Go for it. What yeah, I was just say that... It's going to say, because that's the biggest thing about the High Republic that is sort of like a nuance to Star Wars is the Outer Rim is very much the Wild West. It is just beginning to be going from, you know, uh, almost off the charts, off the maps to becoming settlements in the frontier. And so, like, yeah, all of the, the inner systems are starting to finally put anchor points out there. And the Legacy Run is essentially this just giant kind of almost colony transport bringing an entire new flood of settlers out to the Outer Rim. And the Republic, led by Chancellor Lena So, has been shepherding these people out to the edge of the known galaxy. You know, this is not the only ship that has made this journey. The Many ships have taken transportations of many thousands of passengers, and they're constantly trying to fill in these outer rim worlds. And one of the things that makes this all so interesting is it adds a little bit of, mm, I don't know, would you call it gravity, to the fact that when we see, you know, Tatooine in Episode One, or when we see some of these more far-off planets, we have a little bit of a better understanding of why they feel so backwater compared to, you know, the mm -hmm. mid-rim or the uh, inner rim planets, stuff like that. So we have these planets that we're giving a reason as to why they feel so drastically different compared to some of these higher tech planets. And I really, really like that. Now, the Republic, yes. like we said, is trying to launch the Starlight Beacon, a station that will provide uh, unity to the far-flung far worlds of the known galaxy. So, essentially, this station, we've talked about it on a previous episode, but, you know, mm -hmm. the point is it is a... Um, a beacon of many things. It is a, uh, a relay for communication so they can get comms working in the outer rim. It is a, a hyperspace beacon. It is a research station and a hospital and all of these things that are meant to benefit all of the citizens, uh, you know, around that part of the galaxy. So it's this really, really cool idea. And essentially it's a uh, launching point for this story here. So we have Cassid, who's this army veteran pilot. She's a seasoned captain of her ship, and she's inspecting it while they're literally on the run. So what's happening is she's going around the ship, and she, uh, you know, is checking everything as she goes, making sure everything looks good, making sure there aren't going to be issues. And she's chatting with some children who want some more uh, tapes in the lounge when all the alarms begin to go off. She rushes back to the bridge and takes over from her lieutenant, and she's informed that there's an obstacle in the hyperspace lane dead ahead of them. 
She takes manual mm. control of the ship and manages to narrowly avoid the object with the sluggish freighter. But she can feel as she makes the movement, the ship is groaning against her, you know, trying to move something so large so fast. And the ship pulls apart as uh, all the airlocks are slammed down, hoping to save some people as the captain dies, as the bridge is ripped open. So what we have Mm -hmm. here right off the bat in the first chapter is a very, very, very surprising uh, start. I mean, when we crack this book open, Mac, I don't think this is what we expected to find. No, I think the interesting thing about it is they, um, we both talked before and we're going to get into all the details of this, but I love the idea of this is an almost like a natural disaster, right? This is, this is this thing happens and the Jedi and the Republic have to respond to something that isn't really an attack. It's not, it's not a Star Wars, it's a star emergency. And (laughs) I I think that's an interesting turn because Star Wars doesn't really do a lot with that. This is like that one scene from episode three, like at the end of the Battle of Coruscant when the, the you know, when the um, invisible hand is crash landing on Coruscant. Mm-hmm. It's like that written into an entire galactic wide like event of just the emergency crews and the trying to salvage and save people and just this very, um, you know, terrifying Um, event that's causing all these ripple effects across the universe. And what I love about it is right away, so we see, you know, the perspective from the people it's happening to. But then as we jump into the next chapter here, we visit a new character, this scan tech Mervyn Getter, and we're seeing, you know, him experience the event from his point of view on the ground. And so as he's Mm -hmm. sitting at his station and he's thinking about leaving early and working up the courage to talk with uh, the bartender he's been wanting to ask to dinner. His co-worker, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lets him do all the work while she reads Jedi romance novels, which I thought was a great detail. Uh, yeah. Some alarms start going off and many objects appear out of hyperspace above the Hetzel system. Now, the Hetzel system is where we're going to spend sort of all of our time here talking about this. They keep appearing and as they're about to leave, uh, they send a message warning the system. All of these projectiles start hitting their station, sort of this early warning station, and uh, obliterating the entire thing. So right yeah. off the bat here, we're seeing these sort of two instances of tragedy coming from this, uh, the beginning of this story and this event. And, uh, you know, well, I guess that's why it's called the disaster, isn't it? Ye- yeah, well, because the whole thing about it is these ships are dropping into real space. And, of course, they have no way to bleed off the momentum they've picked up in hyperspace because they're... Literally, they're falling out of hyperspace. It's yeah. not a planned exit or deceleration. So you just have, like you said, like you have chunks of these these ships that are now, you know, essentially like blaster bolts going through rock and buildings and yeah. all kinds of stuff. And it's, it is, the, the way they describe it in the book is some pretty terrifying because this is very brutally fast the way these things are destroying stuff. Yeah, you have um, essentially, I mean, think of it like meteors just making planet fall. Like they are essentially anything that they are near is just getting completely obliterated. And not mm-hmm. only are they, you know, destroying all these people and all of these things on the ground, but each and every one of these meteor like things is most likely filled with people because these yeah. are, you know, compartments of ships that are breaking off uh, in hyperspace. And uh, it's kind of crazy, right? 
And so as the alarms uh, in the system continue to go off and the projectiles continue to hit down, um, Hetzel, uh, the prime minister of Hetzel, receives a call from the Jedi that they are on their way and uh, coming in to help. So this is our first taste of Jedi in this High Republic era. Sort of these, uh, you know, luckily we were close by because of this, you know, starlight beacon. And we're here to help you. We're here to save the day. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a really fun way, I think, to introduce everything. And this is where the Third Horizon shows up. The Republic ship commanded by Admiral Cronara. Uh, arrives out of hyperspace above Hetzel. Now, this is the best Republic ship that they have to offer, and they're fresh from a dedication ceremony at the Starlight Beacon. The Third Horizon Mm -hmm. is part of the Republic Defense Coalition, which is a peacekeeping fleet that sort of works in the Outer Rim. So instead of being like the main military, they're sort of like their own break-off group. Now, the Jedi are piloting these starfighters called Vectors. Now, Mac, I'm sure you have something to say about the Vectors. Yeah, so we kind of get, again, the shape of what the Jedi are like in this time, because we have this advanced ship that's sort of their vanguard out here in the Outer Rim. We have a coalition, again, not de-establishing the fact that the Republic has never had a standing army. This is a this is a group of people. Basically, the Jedi are as close to you get to Republic soldiers. Everybody else is from some system or some planet or some organization and just lending help to the like Republic Defense Initiative. And so, yeah, so you get this capital ship, the Third Horizon comes in, and it starts dropping its ships. You have the Vectors, which are their agile, fast little starfighters, um, and little scout and courier ships. And then you also are going to have the Long Beams, which are a little bit more of a um, kind of a workhorse, a little more for transport, cargo, and general purpose. Um, And these are what they have, and we start seeing them being deployed, and we start, again, getting this real taste of the High Republic that this is Jedi in their prime, because we find out these are ships designed for Jedi. They talk about the vectors and how you have to be almost in a somewhat meditative state to get the best performance out of it. Because you have to become one with the ship and, you know, it's sort of its performance would, you know, be too much for any normal pilot to handle. Only a Jedi tuned with it can actually, you know, not rip it apart or have it shear into pieces as it's being used at these incredible velocities it can go at. They also Um, use their lightsabers as the power source for the weapons with those ships. Oh, that's right. Right. I I almost forgot about that. Another very good detail that I liked a lot. Yeah, and it also makes it so you can kind of get, imagine that they're personalized because, you know, it's whatever lightsaber color you have is probably what's being shot out the front, as well as the, I think they even mentioned the fact of like, and it also makes sure that no one's getting in these but Jedi. You kind of need a lightsaber to even use the thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's the special access key. Uh, on the bridge of the Third Horizon, Avar Chris uh, begins her battle meditation. So right off the mm-hmm. top here, we're seeing sort of that classic power that we got a lot of. You know, Bastilla Shan had it in uh, Knights of the Old Republic, and uh, many Sith have had it uh, throughout the reign of, you know, of Legends and all that. So we've seen this power many, many times before. Uh, and so to sort of bring it into canon here with uh, Avar Chris sort of establishing her as a unique and powerful character right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a fan of, you know, the Old Republic stuff, like, it warms my heart to hear battle meditation being said. And the fact that we get to, again, see that power, which I think is just so, uh, so mystical, 
Like, mm-hmm. because again, it all it really does is it just powers the morale of your side and demoralizes your the other side. And in this case, it's kind of cool because while it is a battle meditation, all it's doing is just strengthening the resolve of all the Jedi and people working to rescue and save this system. Yeah, they talk about it like they're not able to communicate using it, but they can use it to sort of get an emotion or a feeling across. So, for example, mm-hmm. if they're all, uh, you know, need to do something that needs to be perfectly timed together, they can all sort of, you know, shout the word go at the same time and everybody will not hear the word, but feel that it is time to make the action, you know, that sort of thing. So they they talk about it in a way that makes it seem... Um, Oh, a little bit less more of a direct impact and more mm-hmm. of just like an overall, like Max said, an, uh, an impact on the emotion or the feeling of the people involved. And I love that. I just think it's such a, I, 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 I like it because again, it's mystical. Um, and when they, and when we did a topic on it, but like just the idea of like, you know, a battle is won in the hearts and minds of its soldiers. And that's what this is all about is just stealing the resolve of, yeah. of yeah. people by allowing that, you know, that emotion, that encouragement to just kind of flow through people through the force. It's great. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, and then we're introduced to our next couple of Jedi, Bell Zetafar and Loden Greatstorm, as they're hurling mm-hmm. through space in their vector. Uh, and uh, Bell secretly calls the vector Nova, which is great, has a little name for it, even though uh, <laughs> his master tells him to use his power uh, to locate those they can help. So they find there is a gated house with a uh, large yacht in the front, and citizens are surrounding the gate trying to get safely aboard the ship. So uh, Loden brings the ship above the crowd and they both jump out. So we're seeing a right off the bat here, kind of the Jedi step in both in the sky and on the ground. And being introduced to some new characters. And and again, just to, to reiterate, we've already been to like the Prime Minister's office. We've been on the Third Horizon. We've heard the inner monologue of the disaster run, like Legacy Run. It does such a great job of keep moving the point of view around the disaster to give you it this great scope and depth and how many different like layers it's happening on. Um, because we're about to see with like Great Storm and uh, Bell is going to be much more uh, smaller scale personal what's happening to the actual people on the ground we're going to be dealing with you know the 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 space rescue and and just it it's working on so many levels and just gives it such a a scope um yeah couldn't yeah, agree more it it's a really um it, it's a star wars book that when you read the first act here the first third of it it very much feels like a Star Wars film. Like it's jumping around in quick cuts in the same way a movie would that books Mm -hmm. don't always do. Although I guess that is becoming more of a popular sort of way to write. But in general, it is written and told in these sort of quick action beats. The chapters are very, very short. It's like you could summarize each chapter in a paragraph. That's what's happening. But it's, yeah, it's really effectively done and uh, really, really great work. For a, for a first book in a series. Really love that. Um, in fact, here at the, we're at kind of now the beginning of Chapter 6, and uh, we meet new characters. Captain Bright 
of the Longbeam, the Aurora 9, uh, pilots the ship toward a space reacher station that the projectile hurling towards it. So basically, there's this space station that has a piece of the Legacy run uh, on collision course with it. They fire their right. missiles, but they miss the object and hit the station. Uh, the crew is hesitant, but uh, Bright insists on heading inboard in case there are survivors. So we have another group of people essentially out there trying to help survivors. So we have someone using battle meditation. We have people in their ships above the planet. We have Bell and Loden on the planet. And now we have uh, Captain Bright uh, working to rescue people from this space station. So a lot going mm-hmm. on here at the beginning of the book. Yeah, and again, just seeing different people's perspectives on this just Mm -hmm. unimaginable problem. Yeah. All right, let's meet some more characters. We've got uh, one of the best, the Padawan Buryaga, the Wookiee Jedi. Everybody's favorite, right? (laughs) We've also got Nib Asik, Mikkel Sutami, and Tiami. Uh, So we've got a bunch of Jedis here. Uh, They're piloting their three vectors towards a huge chunk of debris. Um, along with a long beam ship, which is piloted by some human volunteers. And Tiami reveals that Avar Chris can help communicate during coordinations. This is what we were talking about earlier. So they don't need to speak together and can act as one. As they are about to fire on the chunk of debris, Bury the Padawan objects, and he believes that, oh, they believe that he's just overwhelmed by everything going on around him. But he interjects, revealing he is feeling emotions of people alive on the debris, so they can't destroy it. So instead of trying to destroy the thing heading for the space station, they can't just do that. Now, along uh, with uh, the Third Horizon back over there, Avar Chris is still in her meditation, and she thinks about all the Jedi who are rushing to help all of the people traveling through hyperspace. Uh, this is where we get a little bit of backstory for her. She has memories of friends growing up at the temple. And she, uh, you know, then brings her concentration back and uh, understands what's happening all of a sudden, what Burry is sensing over uh, with his little piece of debris. And she uses her meditation to tell everybody that there are 10 mm-hmm. objects with life inside them and they have to attempt to save all of them. So Chris tells the bra- the uh, the bridge to start brainstorming ideas on how they can do that. So basically, Burry is the one who discovers that these are pieces of a ship. These aren't just meteorites or debris that are coming down. These are actually compartments of a ship that still have people potentially alive in them. And so they can't just blow them out of the sky. They have to save them. Right, because as it's dropped out of real space, the ships have sheared from that force. And so just all these compartments and sections and stuff are just coming in these cascading waves of debris. Yeah, and they're popping out of hyperspace at random points. So they don't know where or when any of these things are going to happen. They can just come out of nowhere at random, and it's kind of scary. Terrifying. <laughs> all right, back on the planet, Bell and Loden drop from the sky, uh, and Bell is unable to control his descent. He's still a paddle one after all, thinking his mm-hmm. life is over, but Loden catches him as he uh, is about to hit the ground and puts him down with ease. Loden jokes about uh, Bell needing more training, and he'll throw him off skyscrapers when they return to Coruscant. <laughs> <laughs> they have, Their relationship they, is great. They, they really are, I think, my favorite part of the High Republic and this first book here. Uh, really, mm-hmm. really, no spoilers, but uh, really have a great relationship. Uh, they approach the the house uh, walls where Loden asks a guard, why are they not allowing people in? 
and uh, the guard basically uh, implies threat that uh, if they don't leave, they will uh, they will hurt them. But the two transports are uh, armed, and basically they're not going to let anybody in. So they're not going to let anybody into the ship. They're not going to let anybody take off with mm-hmm. them. It's just going to be the people in this mansion who are going to escape uh, harm and leave all these people uh, people behind. Right, and so you have that great kind of human tragedy of people realize there's a disaster, and people are already starting to realize that maybe there's no safe, there's no safety here. We just need to escape, and so you start seeing sort of the people who have access to ships uh, trying to just protect themselves and not necessarily being aware or being willing to uh, give what aid they can. And you've got the Jedi kind of like trying to negotiate this, trying to make everyone see reason of like, it's best for us all to help each other kind of stuff. And it's, it's just, it's really good humanitarian thing. You get to see sort of that Jedi, the, the diplomat kind of side of being Jedi. Yeah. And what I love about it too, is Loden even like is apply implying just slightly that he's threatening them. So the guards decide, you know what? No harm off our back. We'll let him in. And then all of a sudden some marauders show up out of nowhere uh, and start firing randomly into the crowd. So essentially what we have here is we have people who are taking advantage of the fact that it's the end of the world, these looters, and they are here to uh, cause some mayhem. Anarchists. Yes, exactly. Now, meanwhile, back in space, we've got uh, uh, new characters we haven't met yet. Joss and Pika Arden. These are the pilots of the Mm -hmm. Aurora 3, and they're working with the Jedi who uh, discovered that there are people on these debris. They're throwing ideas back and forth, which leads Joss to suggest they're mag clamps. So they contact Tiami and say that if the Jedi can help slow it down a little bit, even 1% helping immensely, they will wrap a net around the debris and slowly cause it to decelerate. They also asked the Jedi mm-hmm. to try and help hold it together, which I thought was really funny, you know, to basically try and stop it from falling apart. So as they yeah. speed towards the object, uh, they have no idea if their plan will actually work, but they're willing to give it a try. Like I said, it's just it's cool seeing Jedi use their powers for, again, for more support and aid than attack and defense. And what I love about this too, is you have these people that aren't Jedi. These people are volunteers essentially. And they're the ones coming up with the solution to solve the problem. The Jedi are just helping implement it. And when you have, you know, the Westerns, or of course, you know, we've seen so much in in Jedi. Sometimes the townspeople have to be the ones to come together and stand up to the villain. And this is a, you know, a different way of reaching that same trope, but that's what this is. You know, it's, it's the normal, average everyday person uh, coming through with the solution, not the hero you'd expect. And I, I think that's a just mm-hmm. a small little detail that I found interesting. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's so cool. The context in which this story happens is just so neat. Yeah, absolutely. A, a huge shout out to Charles Scholl, uh, you know, coming over. Uh, he, he, you know, so he did a lot of great work with comics, Star Wars comics. And this was his first Star Wars novel. And he absolutely killed it. I think he really wrote it in a way that made it incredibly pleasurable to read and just made it, you know, it's a real page turner in the most classic sense. Uh, really, really great job here. So, you know, if we haven't sold you on it yet, even if you're getting the first third of it spoiled now, give it a try. All right, so here we are. We're um, leaving Hetzel, uh, four transports, 
thousands of people wonder if they were ever returned to the planet. And uh, as that happens, a projectile emerges from hyperspace in front of them and pierces through each ship. Uh, Avercris feels all this from her position on the bridge. She sees that hundreds are being wiped out when a fragment hits water near a kelp farm. And uh, out of everything Mm -hmm. that is happening, there is one thing she can't feel. An empty spot she can't identify. And worried that if she can identify it, all their other efforts will be in vain. And this is where they go into a little bit of detail about how each Jedi kind of sees and feels the Force differently. You know, they talk about some Jedi seeing it as an ocean moving and flowing, and some people see it as a a song, you know, that they have to hear and listen for, and all of these different really, really nice metaphors, but they give them these sort of visual representations in the story. And uh, like I said, another really cool piece of writing, I think. Yeah, they, and it also presents what I think something we didn't have time for, say, in the prequels, right? Um, and it's probably not as prominent in the prequels, which is these multiple, multifaceted interpretations of the Force, a, a far more open and explorative and open-minded way of, of doing it. The, yeah. the Jedi are not nearly as... Um, uh, as based in rules and policies as they will be by the end of the prequels. Absolutely. And I, and I love that. It's just showing how much more uh, free and true to the real nature of the force that they are. I really, really like that they chose yeah. to do it that way. Now, uh, back on the Aurora nine, captain bright pilots his ship toward uh, the space station that they are trying to dock with. He uses his fire suppression spray and they're able to extinguish the external fire and dock with the station. Uh, Bright, along with his officers, Ensign Peoples, and Inaman, uh, search the station. Bright is the first to find two survivors, one conscious and the other unconscious. He calls his Pildroid to come take them to the ship when he receives a comm from Inaman. He reports Mm. that the reactor is damaged and the whole station could blow at any minute. He offers to try and stabilize it, but knows they are low on time. Bright takes off looking for more survivors as Peoples reports one more found. Back on the planet, Bell and Loden reflect all the Marauders' fire, each taking one of the tanks out. They turn them into burning metal, and uh, Bell uh, feels the Marauders inside of it die. I thought that was a very brutal detail to add in there. Um, He hopes this will make the rest of them stop. You know, he mourns the loss of life. Um, Some more start firing on them with their hand weapons, but then fade back into the crowd. Uh, As they decide on a course of action, the guards start firing on them, and Loden manages to block a blast heading for Bell's head. Then Bell protects Loden as Loden lifts the remaining eight marauders out of the crowd with the force high into the air, dropping them so as to only injure them, which I thought was another good detail. Loden then turns to the gate of the estate using the force to push the gates in. The guards drop their guns as the refugees run for the ship. As they watch their success, they feel something wrong from Master Chris on the third horizon. So we're seeing some Jedi here help out on the ground. Uh, and I, and I like the fact that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're taking the loss of life seriously. They're showing that they're, uh, you know, trying their best to avoid it. I will say, I think, um, this sequence was probably one of my favorites just because it has the, the frustration and the anger and the sort of like helplessness of trying to figure out the situation. It's like, I'm trying to save people, but now the reactor's going and now I have to go stop the reactor, but that was already three floors down from where I was. Like it, it just kind of encapsulates sort of the pressure cooker that's happening all across 
the Hetzel system while they're trying to deal with this stuff. Yes, absolutely. It's just one problem on top of another, essentially. They just keep building and building and building. And uh, it's not going so well for them because as Avar Chris monitors the situation, she gets a call from the Chancellor asking for a status update. She still feels like she's missing something, and upon inspecting all the projectiles, the Force helps point her to one. She gets an officer to work with the Hetzel satellites, and they learn that it is a leaking canister of Tabana gas heading straight towards a star. So if you don't remember, Tabana gas is a substance we've heard before in Star Wars, but mm-hmm. it's essentially incredibly powerful fuel and uh, very, very flammable. So if it hits a star, that could literally cause the star to blow up. So not such a great turn of events. Right, and it, and it's only because it was on the Legacy Run, this colony ship, that there's enough of it to cause this problem. So it's just, again, it's just a perfect encapsulation of how um, just terrible this disaster is and how it is not only a human tragedy, but just so many of the wrong things at the wrong time happening altogether. Yes, absolutely. They just keep stacking on one on one uh, on one on top of each other. And of course, this is not what the Chancellor wants because this is supposed to be a great day for them, you know, the unveiling of the Starlight Beacon. Now, Tiami's yeah. team uh, flies alongside the projectile, firing their clamps and making contact. The Jedi use the force to keep the object from breaking up and are able to slow it down enough for the long beam to reel it in. They are exhausted and almost out of fuel, but the passengers and the objects seem to be alive. Then a feeling goes out through Chris, and Tiami knows they are needed, so she's starting to warn people of this Tabana gas uh, container. Captain Mm -hmm. Bright and his crew manage to get all seven station members back to their ship, back on the burning station that's unstable. Bright calms Inamin to see where he is, but Inamin says he has to stay because he has to enter a sequence every few seconds to keep the reactor cool. Bright rushes to him with the pill droid, and they teach the droid to do it. Inamin goes back to the ship, and as Bright climbs the the ladder behind him, he discovers an unconscious injured Twi'lek. Since Bright can't carry Mm -hmm. him, he switches with the droid and sacrifices himself, staying behind so everyone else can escape. The station blows along with Captain Bright as the Aurora 9 escapes. So we see people, uh, you know, people doing their job and willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Yeah, and like I said, that Bright's passage is, I think, my my favorite micro story in there. And again, it's because you get to the kind of classic movie dilemma where it's like, no, I'll stay here and put the sequence of like, no, no, we'll program the droid. That way we both can survive. Ah, there's someone who needs who needs the pill droid because the pill droid could get him out and I can't unless I stay here and I put the sequence in, but that means sure death for me. And like all the wane of those classic sort of like hero's dilemma kind of stuff was just been great. Yeah, absolutely. Because when, when you're reading about these tropes that you sort of already know, you don't have to spend as much time with what's actually happening. You get to just worry about reading the emotion of the character. And that's, I think, what uh, the author takes advantage of here so well is, you know, they do a really good job of, in just a few pages, making you care about someone who you just met. And I, I think it's very right. effective. Absolutely. And, and frankly, I think making you care about characters you don't know about is something Star Wars mm-hmm. books have struggled with for a long time. There are lots of books and legends that introduce new characters that don't have staying power because they're not written well or they're written, um, 
you know, shallowly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I don't want to, you know, bash but, anybody's no, no, work. They just don't have enough. But yeah, that's, they don't have right. enough um, pieces to kind of stick. And I, yeah, that doesn't. It's not necessarily bad writing. It just means that those characters aren't very sticky, which is okay if they're just really side characters. But sometimes they're not just little side characters. Right. Absolutely. All right. So we have uh, Avar Chris back to her, and she knows what to do. She has a plan. So she stays behind, left on Hetzel. She communicates with the Jedi in the system, telling them they need to move the object out of the path of the sun. They all gather together using immense focus. Some Jedi die literally just from concentrating too hard. Uh, I assume a la kind of what Luke went through, you know, using the force projection. Uh, Some simply just pass out. Uh, you know, I guess heat exhaustion or whatever. Um, they succeed, but not quite enough. The subject, they are able to, you know, redirect it a little bit, but still in the path of the sun. The Jedi that yeah. are left try again in their exhaustion and at the last moment move the Tabana out of the path of the sun. For a brief moment, they get a chance to rest. Mm-hmm. And then we learn that Abdallis, a system along the same lane as Hetzel, the same lane that the Legacy Run met its end, had seven pieces enter its system. The warnings were yeah. far too late, and there were no Jedi to save them. Six of the fa- six of the fragments passed through harmlessly, but the seventh, with a glancing blow, eliminated 20 million lives. And this was the first time that one of these emergences happens, meaning there will be many more to come. Yeah. So... A really, really, really uh, great way, in my opinion, to sort of bring it all together there at the end. Not only do they show, um, you know, the Jedi being effective and saving all these lives, but then they let you know that, hey, just because there was this good happening in this one part of the universe, there's still all this bad happening in another part. And it's just a really great... um, well, I don't know, example or metaphor for the Jedi as a whole. Yes, they can affect some people in really great and positive ways, but they can't save everyone. They can't be everywhere. And it's showing that here right at the beginning. And it also uh, shows and uh, why people have doubts in the Jedi, why there could potentially be whole separatist planets, you know, because sometimes people feel like they've been abandoned by the Jedi that are supposed to protect them. Yeah, you end up you end up in the aftermath of this with this sort of um, double-edged sword of praise and glory and celebration for the Jedi because thanks to the Starlight Beacon and the infrastructure that the Republic's put out there, the Hetzel system was saved from certain destruction. Like, the entire system would have been destroyed if the Jedi weren't there to intervene. On the alternative, you've got the same kind of thing that happens after any kind of disaster of like, well, why did they help the Hetzel system? What happened to our system? You know, you didn't care about our system. And it's like, again, it's, it's a nice, I guess, real world analog of, you know, looking at, at, you know, a disaster and there's always bright spots and there's always bad spots. And there's always people who are frustrated with how things went because, you know, it's a terrible situation and you get sort of the vibe of like, yeah, this is a Pyrrhic victory. You know, they 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 saved Hetzel, but they they did not save everyone. In fact, the majority of the disaster is still playing out outside of their ability to do anything. Yeah, it's. I mean, I don't even know what to say other than I think you nailed it, Mac. I, I think it's. It, it says a lot to be able to introduce, uh, you know, a dozen new characters, new worlds, a mm-hmm. new concept, a new era of time in Star Wars. And in, you know, a hundred pages of a book, 
uh, give you this really all-encompassing mini-story that uh, sort of has a beginning, middle, and an end, and is exciting. I mean, it's like we'll go back to the movie analogy earlier. The first third of this book is an opening scene, you know, an opening action beat. It's the Battle of yeah. Coruscant. It's, it's, it's just... It's its own self-contained little thing that is incredibly enjoyable to read. I'm sure it's great as an audiobook. I know that's how you consumed it, right? Yes. It's very good as that. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's it's a book that is going to stand the test of time for Star Wars fans. I think very much like, you know, Plagueis and the Darth Bane book and uh, – there are some others, uh, Kenobi. This is a book that I think for a long, long time people will hold above their heads and say, you know, this is one of the best ones. And as far as current Star Wars canon, I think it may be uh, the best book as far as if I just had to recommend one book to a random person. You know, I think this is one that anybody mm. could pick up and enjoy. Again, it all kicks off with this just amazing scene. And again, even if you've listened to this and you haven't read the book, I really do encourage you to go grab it because, again, we're glossing over it. It, it is a really visceral and very fantastic chapter of Star Wars. Yes, I couldn't agree more, Mac. I couldn't agree more. Uh, fantastic. Right. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, I think we're good. You want to move on to something else? I'm ready. Yet another episode of Star Wars All In comes to a shining conclusion here. Yes, um, the the destruction of Hetzel is complete. Uh, the destruction <laughs> of Ab Dallas is absolute. Uh, we have a lot of mourning people out there across the galaxy. But hey, Starlight Beacon, shiny and fresh, up and running. Everybody wins, right? Yeah, from there, they're just seeing this beautiful like meteor shower, all these shooting stars. <laughs> <laughs> Not you know, losing it's like nine thousand lives being blinked out, but when they see that. There there's lots of people out there who are probably uh heavily critical of Lena So, calling her a you know, a terrorist or a separatist or whatever, but just a few hundred years from now you're you're gonna have a Sith Lord Chancellor, so uh you know, don't take it for granted. Uh, you know I grass is always greener type of thing. I think if you were to attack Lena So, I wouldn't while her animals were around because those make her dangerous and scary. <laughs> um, but I, I would put it as, as the as the disasters pile up in the in the High Republic era, I would just say it's more of a naivete in the sense of she's trying so hard to bring about this golden age. She has these great works they're trying to make happen. And so far, each presentation of a great work has been marred by something going wrong. And I just feel so bad for her because she's trying so hard to make the galaxy <laughs> bind together and make it a bigger, more welcoming place to more species and people. But there are so many forces working against that. Yeah, it's not been easy for the poor girl, uh, but things will turn around, I think. Maybe. Hopefully. Hopefully. Just, just get in bed with the huts. That should fix everything. Well, I, I do have to admit the one cautionary thing as we've going through, uh, I, sh I should just mention, I just finished The Great Storms because I've read the, the essentially the adult novels 
Yeah. I haven't read all the middle grade novels and stuff, but, um, and where I landed, I, I'm just, I'm just thinking of like, I'm assuming a lot of this is feeling really fast and very frantic because it, it's still mind boggling to remember the high Republic started in January of this year. Yeah. And that's when it started. Cause yeah. it feels like we've gone through so much material and I'm like, probably partially cause that is cause we probably have all the stuff from the, uh, 2020 that sort of cascaded into this year or sort of compressed into this year. Yeah, because it was supposed to start in August, wasn't it? In the fall? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't feel that like necessarily all these things were supposed to be happening at the pace they're happening now. And maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like it feels like we have 18 months worth of content in 12 months of time. Yeah. Um, But I will say that there is a part of me that's just a teeny bit worried of like, we just talked about that great hyperspace disaster and how arresting of a start that was. How just like grabbed my heartstrings and made me want to really care about this universe. And the amount of things that have happened and the amount of space of time that has happened between there in the stories makes me just a little bit worried of like, oh, oh, please, let's go back to like fighting the natural disaster and the Jedi being these great protectors of people. I don't. I know they're not going to do Sith stuff, but like, don't make it all about giant force galaxy spanning disaster, you know, uh, uh, cosmic disasters. I'm much more interested in protecting systems. I, like you mentioned it during our, our passage there of like, what I really would love is I would love, give, give me the, give me those romance novels you're talking about, about the, the, <laughs> the Jedi out on the far planets thinking of forbidden love yeah. and having to have these like wild west frontier adventures as they try to eke out civilization in these, you know, unkempt, uh, frontier worlds. I'm all about that. <laughs> uh, I think, I think there's, um, there's a, still a great sense of adventure and stuff. But there is definitely a, a a a modern TV show creep to it. And what I mean by that is like modern TV shows are usually really, really good and really, really interesting and really, really um, uh, epic when they're happening. But then when you take that step back after thinking about what a character's been through through a couple of seasons of a show, you're like, oh, this should just be dying from trauma and be in post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of their life when you actually add up all the things they've done in the last year of their life. Um, and it's starting to get that point where I'm just like, these people need to have a chill pill. Like we need to have a part of the high Republic where like, like, and then they all went to beach world and had a vacation. Cause these people <laughs> need to, ta- they need naps. They really need naps. They've been going really hard for a long time. Everybody deserves a rest. You know, uh, yeah. Opo Rancisis deserves a trip to the mountains or maybe the Everglades. Uh, you know, uh, Yoda, you know, Yoda deserves a spa day. Yariel Poof. Uh, yeah. They they all, they all need their time. Yeah. And, and I, I think like, like I said, I, I would love to have, um, like, and as, a, as an example of fitting this in, right. I would love to have a novel, which is kind of what they're saying the next novel might be. Um, but it's title makes me wary, which is, um, is it? Fall of Stars? Oh, The Fallen Star. The Fallen Star. So it's called The Fallen Star, which is a very ominous title for what the premise is, which is this is a book that's the like the slice of life of what is daily life and culture like on the Starlight Beacon Station. 
And I'm like, mm. oh, I really want that. Please don't kill the Starlight Beacon at the end of this novel. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Please don't kill the Starlight Beacon it does at the feel, end of this novel. Yeah, it does feel maybe a little too soon for that. Because I'm all about, like, space station life and what is it like to be in this you know, this melting pot of all of these Republic uh, species and systems and cultures uh, and and the the embassies, right, of the the um, outer rim where the Republic and its agencies are trying to bring these systems into the Republic and having those negotiations and meeting these strange new people and cultures. And, um, and of course, it will be fun because we spend so much time in the outer rim and proper Star Wars that, like, it would be great to see like the hut representative talking about negotiating, you know, building Bestine on on Tatooine and like, yeah, you can have a republic base here just as long as you know you're not trying to assert your dominance. Maybe <laughs> we can make trade agreements and stuff. That would be cool. Um or uh, or or I would love to see like the republic saying like, "Oh, well we're taking control of these planets that are abandoned cuz we have the technology to get minerals out of them." And we'll call this one Ord Mantel or, you know, like <laughs> building the Ord planets and things like that would be the world building stuff is what I'm really really fascinated with and I think just the breakneck pace of current media. I think they're all going to have to be constantly this, you know, these stress factories of like well, we were just having lunch with these great ambassadors, but then the shooting started. And I'm like, that's fine. But I, I think the High Republic is broad enough that I hope it gives us some slower moments or some quieter moments as we go along with it. I'm sure we'll get that. But yeah, the question being how much. Um, I am right. still uh, in the midst of reading The Rising Storm, so I have not finished it yet. But like I said uh, a couple weeks ago, I did finally finish Into the Dark. Um, so making some progress on the High Republic, but not as much as I would like. But I'll get there. Well, the point is, it's really exciting. It's a good, good time to be in Star Wars because... I don't know if we've ever got content this deep and this fast in Star Wars since, like, maybe the days of New Jedi Order, maybe? Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, those were every couple months. Yeah, and, and so it's it's been kind of fun to have this pace of Star Wars coming at us. And so I hope people out there are, are you know, at least dipping a toe into this you know, this big initiative inside the world of our favorite galaxy. We highly, highly recommend it. But hey, if you're not into this era of Star Wars books, there are many more coming. We just got the uh, Ronin novel. If you like Star Wars Visions, give that a try. We uh, have some announcements for next year. Uh, some new books coming out that are Luke-focused, uh, Obi-Wan-focused, Anakin-focused. So lots mm -hmm. of interesting things coming out from Star Wars Publishing. A lot to look forward to. Yeah, and it's going to be great, and we're going to be here with you for all of it, because I'm Mac. And I'm Ross. And until next Wednesday, may the Force be with you. This production is not endorsed by any other property and is the sole responsibility of Mac Purvis III, Ross Greco, and those involved in its production. It is meant for entertainment purposes only. Other than content provided by this production's providers, all music, music clips, sound bites, rights are reserved, and their respective owners have not endorsed any aspect of this show. Copyright 2021.